Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet. My name is Irene Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. All views expressed in this podcast are my own and not my employers, and the same goes for any guests on this podcast. This episode is part of my continued coverage of the hashtag MeToo allegations against Joshua Wright, an ex-professor at the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School and former FTC commissioner currently accused of sexual misconduct by several former students and a former job applicant. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes on this topic yet, please start by listening to episode 39 with Professor Crystal Laser and episode 40 with Professor Brandy Wagstaff. Also, make sure to hit follow right now for our show on your preferred podcast platform before you forget so that you don't miss any of our upcoming coverage. So right now, go ahead and click follow, please. That and giving us a five-star review allows us to keep growing the podcast and creating more great content. Thank you so much. Today, I have with me someone who knows a lot about and has herself experienced harassment and retaliation in the legal profession. And she also founded the Legal Accountability Project. I have with me today, Elisa Schatzman. I'm grateful to have today with me Elisa Schatzman, a lawyer and advocate based in Washington, D.C., who writes and speaks about accountability in the legal profession and especially the judiciary. She has a BA from Williams College and a JD from Washington University Law. After graduating from law school in 2019, she clerked for a judge in the Superior Court of the District of Columbia, where her judge harassed her and later retaliated against her by making her lose her dream job. Today, she works on legal reform to add new workplace protections for judicial employees and writes about judicial ethics for law reviews and mass media publications. Elisa, welcome. I can't imagine anyone better with whom to talk about what is happening at law schools and in the legal profession today that continues to enable and protect harassers and other wrongdoers. I would love to begin by having you tell our listeners directly about your own story of how one man in the legal profession derailed your original career path. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. As I said to you earlier, I was really moved by your two previous episodes on the topic we're going to talk about today, which led me to reach out not only to the folks you interviewed, but also to you. So just really incredible podcast. So as you mentioned, I decided to clerk in DC Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term. I did not set out to launch a nonprofit when I graduated from WashU Law. I aspired to be a homicide prosecutor in the DC US Attorney's Office. The messaging at WashU Law, like at all law schools around clerkships, is just uniformly positive. I was told that I would develop a lifelong mentor mentee relationship with the judge for whom I clerked, that the position would confer only professional benefits. I was told to accept the first clerkship I was offered, so I did that. So I start this job in August 2019, ready to kind of launch my career. Beginning just weeks in, the judge for whom I clerked began to harass me and discriminate against me because of my gender. He would kick me out of the courtroom and tell me that I made him uncomfortable and that he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. Told me I was bossy, aggressive, nasty, that I had personality issues, stuff that would never be said about a male clerk. The day I found out that I'd passed the DC bar exam, so big day in my life, 
he calls me into his chambers, gets in my face and says, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. And this was just devastating. I mean, this was my first job out of law school. He seemed to be singling me out for mistreatment. I remember crying myself to sleep at night, crying on the walk to work in the morning. Wished I could be reassigned to another judge for the clerkship, which was supposed to last a year. Confided in some attorney mentors who advised me to stick it out. And my courthouse did not have any sort of employee dispute resolution or EDR plan in place that might have enabled me to be reassigned. During the pandemic, I moved back to Philly to stay with my parents and worked remotely. The judge ignored me for six weeks before he called me up and told me he was firing me because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him, but he didn't want to get into it. Then he hung up on me. So I called DC Court's HR. They told me there was nothing they could do. HR doesn't regulate judges and that I should have known I was an at-will employee. So then I contacted my law school, Wash U Law, seeking, I don't know, support, advice. Found out this judge had a history of harassing his clerks, that law school officials, including several professors and the clerkships director, who inexplicably still works at Wash U and advises students on clerkships to this very day, knew about at the time I'd accepted the clerkship. They all decided not to share that info with me because they wanted another Wash U law student to clerk. So this was all obviously really devastating. It took me a year to get back on my feet. I applied for jobs, but questions were asked about why the clerkship had ended early, why the judge wasn't listed as a reference. Secured my dream job in the DC US Attorney's Office. Moved back to DC in the summer of 2021, intending to finally launch my career as a prosecutor. And I was two weeks into training at the USAO. I'd already started working there when I received some really devastating news that altered the course of my life. I was told the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance, and that my job offer was being revoked. So I remember crying on the phone with USAO leadership, DC courts leadership. They wouldn't tell me what the judge had said. They said the decision was final. A couple days later, I was invited to interview for another job with the office, and they revoked that offer too, based on this same negative reference. I was two years into my legal career. This judge just seemed to have the limitless power to ruin my reputation, destroy my career. So I filed a formal judicial complaint, hired attorneys, and in the summer and fall of 2021, participated in the investigation into the now former judge. Partway through that investigation, I found out he was on administrative leave, pending an investigation into other misconduct. At the time he filed the negative reference, the USAO was really not alerted of those circumstances. The former judge was removed from the bench for other reasons. And then he issued a clarifying statement to the USAO in January 2022, pursuant to the terms of our private settlement, addressing some but not all of his outrageous claims about me. But by then the damage had been done. I was pretty much blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. And now I kind of share this experience a lot as part of my work. And what I really seek to underscore is that my experience is not rare, but it is one that is rarely shared publicly due to the legal community's culture of silence and fear surrounding the judiciary, one of deifying judges and others in positions of power and disbelieving law clerks. Wow, this is really the stuff of nightmares. I mean, and I will say, first of all, I want to validate 
you're part of the experience where a law school is telling you like a clerkship is the end all and be all. Look, I was in law school. Uh, I started law school 20 years ago, almost exactly 20 years ago. And it was the same thing. And this was a different law school. This was at Yale Law School. But it was the same thing. Like, of course, you're going to try to get a clerkship for most kinds of jobs that you might want to do afterwards, whether you want to go into academia or you want to go into litigation. Like, that's what most people should be doing, if at all possible. And it was really only through whisper networks that one would find out who was abusive. And we already knew then that some of them were. I mean, I consider myself extremely fortunate for having clerked for Judge Morris Arnold on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals because th that man is a saint. Like, he was just an absolutely wonderful employer. I never saw him be inappropriate to a woman in any way, shape, or form. Not me, not my female cloak clerks. And you look at some of these judges' backgrounds and, you know, he had the kind of background where I think someone would stereotype him as, oh, this is an older judge who grew up in Arkansas and was appointed by a Republican president, right? And, and, and part of why I hold many of these judges accountable, the kind that you hold accountable, is, you know, it's obviously possible to grow up in this country you know, quite some years ago and to be ideologically either idiosyncratic, as I would describe my judge, or be on the right and to not be that kind of person. I think there are plenty of judges that are wonderful human beings that fall into those categories. And then there are some, you know, whether they're on the right or on the left, uh, who decide to mistreat their clerks. So I have a lot of questions for you. Uh, and Look, one of them is this. Talk to me about victim blaming and minimizing. Did you ever have people say or imply to you that you must have just not been a very good clerk? Or as we see with anonymous comments now against some of the alleged victims of Josh Wright, that if they, it was their fault that they didn't push his alleged advances away or that the things he allegedly did were, quote unquote, not that bad. Do you have a reaction to that? Yes. When I was going through the judicial complaint process, the female investigator told me, you must have done something wrong because the judge hired you in the first place. I see an enormous amount of victim blaming. And here's what I would say to that. It is the per person in the position of power's job not to harass people. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't be a professor. You shouldn't be a judge. It is not the survivor's fault that they are experiencing mistreatment. It is the employer's obligation to make things work. And I'm glad you brought up your clerkship experience and your time in law school, because I'll say law schools have made no progress over the past 20 years since you started in terms of sharing information about judges who mistreat their clerks. And they have not been held accountable or at all addressed the fact that they funneled people to folks like Kaczynski and Reinhardt for decades. They just, they try to make some changes on the, on the margins that are insufficient, but they have never been held to account for that. Do you want to mention briefly for our listeners who are not in the legal profession, who judges Kaczynski and Reinhardt are and what the situation was surrounding them? 
Definitely. So these were two feeder judges in the Ninth Circuit, Alex Kaczynski on the right, and then Stephen Reinhardt on the left. In 2017, allegations became public that Alex Kaczynski had harassed some female clerks. Outrageous allegations, but he'd been a a notorious harasser for decades. It was only when one woman blew the whistle and then some others came forward, and he eventually stepped down amid a misconduct investigation. But he was showing clerks pornography. He was harassing hundreds of people. And it was an open secret, as we'll come back to. On the left, Stephen Reinhardt harassing clerks for decades. After his death, Olivia Warren testified before the House Judiciary Committee in 2020 about her experience with workplace mistreatment. But again, this was an open secret among top law schools in the judiciary, in the Ninth Circuit. And yet the only people who were not aware were the students who needed the information that would have enabled them to avoid these horrible clerkships. And unfortunately, the messaging for both of those clerkships is that while these judges were, quote, challenging a euphemism for mistreatment, that it was worth it because they were so prestigious. They were feeders to the top legal jobs or to a Supreme Court clerkship. And that is why these notorious harassers got away with outrageous misconduct for decades. And that's just the tip of the iceberg about judges who mistreat their clerks. And unfortunately, it is the fear of reputational harm and retaliation in the legal profession that is keeping these clerks silent. And I really haven't even done justice to the many victims of those two judges. It is worth reading their experiences, reading some of their testimony. It is really devastating. And the effects of workplace mistreatment on these former clerks are just devastating personally and professionally. It affects your relationship with the law, with your law degree. And I see clerks who are really troubled years, decades after a negative clerkship experience. And we really don't talk about that enough or at all. I will tell you a uh, little story that's uh, it's going to be a bit of vague booking, but where let's just say that one of these notoriously disgraced judges had under very circumstances invited me to stop by his office when I was going to be in the area my 2L summer and I was like oh yeah 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 but I I kind of knew all along I wasn't going to go because I knew the person's reputation and uh, and I had no intention of applying to that person for a clerkship even though again it was one of these very very prestigious judges and years later i encountered this person at a conference and i figured like he's not gonna care that i didn't come to his office or whatever i meet the person and the first words out of his mouth are you didn't come and right because it was like how dared i how dared i i had this this warm invitation to come to his office maybe to talk about clerkships or god knows what and i didn't do it I didn't do it. And, and then essentially what ensued was sort of some small attempts to, or, you know, medium-sized attempts to, to try to humiliate me at that conference. And, you know, it's just one of those things where I feel like I 
I mean, I was very glad that I had never gone to the person's office. I was very glad that I had never applied for a clerkship. But And I could only imagine if, if I had displeased this individual in this very, very small way, and I needed to be punished for that, what the women must have gone through who worked for that person for a long time. Women and men, I've heard stories about both. And yes, I hear stories about both the judges we've been talking about, and they sound like just terrifying individuals, as well as notorious abusers. And it is just outrageous that they went undisciplined. They were never held accountable for their conduct. Now, let me ask you something. Is part of the problem that there are specific individuals who become kingmakers or queenmakers, as the case may be, like feeder judges, which again, we usually use that term in the law to refer to judges that will then uh, recommend you for a Supreme Court clerkship, or in some cases, like you said, for other prestigious jobs. Um, so there are these kingmakers or queenmakers that are feeder judges, or for example, there's, there's this whole pipeline, right? Because there can be a professor that can get you to the right feeder judge that will then get you to the Supreme Court. And for those not familiar with this, because again, I want to be mindful of all our listeners who are not in law and give a little bit of background. If you get a Supreme Court clerkship, that can massively help you get a job in academia. It can massively help you get a job in government. It can get you to a prestigious law firm and secure you a bonus in the value of multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars. It is something that is going to be with you for the rest of your career. So this king making, queen making business is very, very serious and very impactful. So you have these kingmakers, queenmakers, these judges, these professors, they can get you all this stuff. And then these are the people that often don't have to suffer the consequences of their behavior. So is this a phenomenon you think is happening a lot? And I mean, I know this is part of what you're pushing back on with your work. If you want to, if you want to talk about that. Yes, we have created a culture in the legal community where some powerful people, some tenured professors, and obviously judges, life tenured federal judges, we treat them as if they are untouchable. Now, in the judiciary, they are exempt from Title VII, so they are literally above the laws they enforce and interpret. But yes, when we create a system where people are untouchable, we create a culture of fear and silence, they are never held to account which is why what we're talking about today is so important, creating a culture of reporting, sharing those experiences publicly, filing complaints. It is the only way the people in positions of power will ever be held to account. So while professors can obviously be predators, as we've seen, uh, they, and perhaps especially women and minorities among them, can also become the victims of predators uh, and or of various institutional forces that are singling out victims. Now, part of this is that getting a tenure track or a tenured academic job, both at the entry and lateral levels, is very difficult. And so people are often afraid of advocating for themselves when they're being harassed or discriminated against, and also um, afraid of whistleblowing when they see it happen to others. Whether we're talking about law students, law clerks, lawyers, or professors, do you have thoughts on how we remove some of the stigma of speaking out and how we can best support individuals in those situations? Definitely. So when I think about sharing my own experience, which I do publicly and often, 
I think that there is some measure of accountability in that. It is empowering to share my experience, to speak out. And that is the culture we need to create. It is about empowering every survivor to share their experience. It should not be a black mark on anyone's reputation to speak out against workplace mistreatment, nor should you really want to work in a place where you would be dissuaded from speaking out against workplace mistreatment. The people whose reputation should be stained for misconduct are the powerful abusers who are not held to account and the institutions, law schools, and the judiciary that are not holding them to account, which is why I am so inspired by some of the people sharing their experiences with Joshua Wright publicly and knowing that there could be reputational harm associated with that. This is the best way to change the culture. Speaking out publicly, one by one, sharing our experiences, this is how we change the culture. Well, certainly the more people do it, I think the more the stigma will disappear. We've seen some of the same thing happen with professors and others, law students and others talking about mental health issues, lawyers as well. And it's also something at the same time where I feel like the law is always a little bit behind. So I look at some of our friends in the humanities and and I feel like they've done so much of a better job talking about some of these issues. I'm thinking particularly right now about mental health. And and what is it about the law? What is it about our profession where it's, why is it so shameful to talk about vulnerability, either internal vulnerability or the way that one has been victimized? Do you have some thoughts on that? Yes. The legal profession is cautious and fearful, and that creates silence. That is a problem when I think about my own experience trying to find allies. Everybody was so afraid of speaking out, speaking out against a judge. We need to be changing that. But yes, I encounter every day fear and silence. Changing that culture starts on law school campuses where they are shaping the next generation of leaders and thinkers. And they are giving the messaging that the right professional decision is not to report, that speaking publicly will tarnish your reputation. Had some clerkship directors, a lot of clerkship directors, particularly women, tell me things like, most people who experience mistreatment in a clerkship just want to keep their heads down and move on. I hear that routinely. It is changing that messaging because that's where it starts. And then empowering everybody in the legal community to be speaking out for change. I encounter way too much fear I encounter way too much caution, and that has long precluded change. But it is beyond time to make changes to protect the next generation of students, clerks, attorneys. I am often bothered by what I perceive to be, I'm going to call it hypocrisy, in terms of a total disconnect between what people teach students, what professors teach students in the classroom, and then the advice that they would actually give one-on-one or how they themselves would handle a situation. So we talk about justice and about, you know, advancing the the rights of women and minorities, et cetera. But a lot of these people are not even particularly good allies, even when it comes to helping just a little bit, speaking out just a little bit. Is, Is some of this just the sheer selfishness of a lot of people in the profession or just of humans at large? Is it 
Is it fear, anxiety? I, I'm just continuously shocked by, I'm going to add another bit to the hypocrisy. There are a lot of law schools that break all kinds of laws. Like if you talk to professors, I mean, the kinds of things that are said at hiring meetings, the kinds of things that are said in, in all sorts of settings where it is stuff that is just blatantly illegal. So what gives? I mean, is it just that people think like, well, we're above the law. What we teach in the classroom is one thing, but really, you know, when it's when it's ourselves, when it's ourselves putting our butts on the line, like that's completely different. Like what's the psychology here? They, it is about self-preservation for a lot of these faculty members. I And I could not agree more strongly about the hypocrisy because let's talk about, let's transition it to my work, clerkships. There are clerkship directors and deans whose goal is to funnel as many people into clerkships as possible. There is clearly a perverse incentive not to share information about judges who mistreat their clerks. But then there are all these faculty members who play an informal or somewhat formal role in clerkship advising, dealing one-on-one -on -one with students who trust their professors to have their best interests at heart, who are withholding information, who are saying that even a challenging clerkship is worth it for the prestige, who are dissuading clerks from reporting mistreatment. I see that over and over. And when I think about the many law professors, including female law professors who could be allies in my work now and for whom the silence has been deafening over the past 15 months, it is definitely about the self-preservation, which is crazy that for faculty members and law schools, their calculus is we wouldn't want to piss off even one judge, even the notorious harassers. We'd rather send our students to them than give people more information about judges. So spoiler alert, LAP isn't really pissing off too many judges. We've had a lot of support from the judiciary. And I think the faculty members and clerkship directors and deans purveying this idea that we are pissing off judges really don't know the judiciary as well as they think they do. But it is about self-preservation at the end of the day, which is so selfish, especially for the tenured ones. I mean, you are tasked with protecting students' best interests. You are shaping the next generation of thinkers and leaders. And they continue year after year to funnel students into clerkships they know or suspect are bad, to puff up their reputation, to puff up their rankings, to maintain their personal individual relationships with these powerful judges. And what a disservice to students and clerks. And it's something that should be called out even more than I can do on a daily basis. Do you get the feeling that a lot of law school administrators don't care if a professor or a judge harasses a student or an alumnus or an alumna unless the name of the school genuinely suffers at any point? Because I'm kind of getting the feeling that you are saying that. <laughs> I don't want to paint too broad a brush. There are some great clerkship directors and deans. There are some great law schools. There are some great professors. But yes, some don't care. Some don't care enough, and some worry that their relationship is going to be threatened more by providing transparent information about judges and clerkships than they do right now. So here's the situation. Whether you go to a top five law school or a regional school or somewhere in between, there is a dearth of transparent information about judges as managers 
and clerkship experiences. What LAP is trying to do is correct that injustice for the next generation of students by providing transparent information. So you can figure out who's going to be a good boss and mentor. So you can avoid judges known to mistreat their clerks. Outrageously, I speak with so many deans, clerkship directors, and faculty members. I always ask, do you dissuade students from clerking for judges known to mistreat their clerks? It's almost uniformly no. That is despicable that you would know or suspect a judge mistreats their clerks and not dissuade students from clerking for them. So they just don't care enough. And I am trying to give them several reasons why they should care, but some of them don't care enough. And they could prove me wrong by engaging with LAP and supporting our work, or they could keep doing what they're doing and I'll call them out for doing it. One of the things I'm wondering about too is should we spend more time educating young people on narcissism and sociopathy? Not that this should be their job, but just to like help them out, like to help them recognize red flags in a possible employer, like when they interview with that person, whether that's a professor or a law firm partner or a judge. For example, did you know from the beginning something was off with your judge or did it dawn on you later? So it's a great question and a great point. Um, I think I knew from pretty early on that there were red flags, but I assumed judges are idiosyncratic. But you make such a good point that it is about teaching students to look out for red flag behaviors throughout the legal profession, whether it is a professor doing something wrong or an employer. I think students don't really know what is bad behavior and what is acceptable. I worry that they are taught to keep their heads down and endure whatever comes their way. And we need to be empowering them to stand up for themselves, to know what a toxic work environment looks like and to speak out about it. You know, when I went to law school, again, back in the Stone Ages, I had only lived in this country for three years. I did college in three years and I just always got a weird vibe in law school about the way things were. And I didn't know if that's just something about, about me. Like, do I not understand culturally what's going on? Like some of these people, whether my classmates or professors, like seem very different from me. And so there were certain parts of the, let's call it the quote unquote scene uh, that I stayed away from to some extent. And I had never been to any other law school. So I had nothing to compare to. I mean, at this point, of course, I've been in the profession for a long time. And so I can compare different cultures of different law schools. But at the time, look, when I was in my first semester, talk about open secrets, it was an open secret that one of my professors was having a sexual relationship with one of the TAs. And, and that was just something people knew. And it seemed like that was just the thing that happened apparently at law schools. I had not noticed that in college, you know, I, I was in, at the same university for college and law school, but I had not run into that situation or was not aware of it at least. Uh, and then it's like, okay, what do I do with that? I have no idea. Uh, then it also that same professor, apparently, according to some friends of mine would go and have drinks with students on whatever it was Thursday night or whenever it was people went to bars, which also in the first place is like, huh, why was this professor going to, what? this was not someone like even close to students age or, or anything like that. Not, not that it would be particularly okay anyway, but I'm saying it was even sort of weirder, right? That there was this big age gap. And so he would 
go there. And apparently during one of these outings, if I remember correctly, is when he told people that a different professor had slept with his students. And it's like, oh, okay. Like this was a professor. The other person was a professor who I never took classes with. And, and then there were sort of other things that he talked about, about that professor and about his wife and, and things like that. And so th- all this happened during my first year. And it's like, oh, okay. So this is apparently just stuff that happens here at a law school. Uh, so it just, I think it sort of alienated me in some ways. Like it also did not make me want to go to office hours and not make me want to get to know some of these people. And so, which of course then comes with its own drawbacks, right? Professionally, if you don't get to know these people. So then I don't know. I mean, and it took years and years and years and years until anything happened to either one of the professors in this story. One is no longer at the institution. There were consequences against the other one as well. uh, From what I know, and so here we are what do you do when you're in that kind of culture i mean what do you do as a law student like what you know who do you go talk to and what do you say i like you have always found it weird that in legal academia there are so many open secrets like why are they open secrets why has somebody not taken the step to report why has nobody taken the step to make change there obviously need to be policies in place and reporting channels in place, but I think it's on everybody who sees misconduct to say something or else you're just perpetuating the problem. Who would I go to specifically? Probably a dean, the Title IX office, the DEI office, all of the above. As we're gonna talk about, some of those reporting channels are not super responsive, unfortunately, to student needs, but that's where I would go. Nothing is going to change unless we are creating a culture of reporting. And that might make some people uncomfortable to hear because the question is, what about the survivor's fears of retaliation and reputational harm? But if you're not reporting, you're perpetuating the problem. So speaking of which, in the Josh Wright case, he is now suing two of the main alleged victims for defamation. Is it a common fear among people considering speaking up that that particular thing will happen to them. You've already talked about a number of bad things that can happen, but that you could end up with a defamation lawsuit and where even if you win in the end, you could be dealing with years of legal process, all sorts of financial costs, lots of time spent and and emotional roller coasters that have to be handled and so on. Like to what extent are people driven? I don't know, maybe even more after the Depp v. Heard case, by fears of that type of retaliation. Yes, fear of frivolous defamation litigation definitely silences survivors. I thought about these issues back when I was going through the judicial complaint process, back when I was thinking through signing a settlement agreement. Truth is an absolute defense, but you still have to defend it and you're gonna need an attorney and it's gonna be expensive. And there are not nearly enough attorneys willing to represent survivors in these cases on a contingency basis or pro bono. So yes, it absolutely silences survivors. But at the end of the day, it's about empowering people to speak out. And I imagine that is always the calculus when people are thinking about speaking out. I think it's outrageous, the the lawsuit that has been filed. 
But, you know, when you have nothing to lose, I guess that's what you do. Well, you know, you make a, an interesting point that raises another question for me. Is there really nothing to lose? Because, you know, is there a path? And the reason I'm asking is this. Is there a path to redemption for people who have done something bad, like who have who have harassed people, who have, if you were speaking right now, and, and for all we know, you know, one or two of these people might be listening. If you were speaking right now to people who know they've done something bad, whether that's now public or not, and maybe your advice is different depending on that, what would you say for them? Because, you know, if we take Josh Wright, let's say the allegations turn out to be true. It's, I mean, he's in his mid-40s. He's not that old. He is no longer at a law school, as his defamation complaint discusses. He has lost a whole bunch of clients as a result of the allegations, or at least he says that that's why he lost them. Where, where do you go from there as someone who is in that kind of a situation? Like, is there a sort of a path back to society that maybe does not look like a defamation lawsuit, that maybe looks like something else? Good question. I think about this a lot, actually. I think the first step would be an apology and to show remorse. When I think of what I want but will never get from the former judge, my law school, DC courts, it's an apology. So I think that's the first step. I think for somebody facing allegations like the ones against Joshua Wright, he should not be in a position dealing with students unless he can show that he has changed. I get asked a lot whether I think judges can change, judges accused of misconduct, but I think this goes to the larger question of whether powerful people accused of misconduct can change. I'm not convinced. Now, somebody could prove me wrong, but when you are a powerful person engaging in misconduct for years, for decades, acting as if you are above the law, uh, I think the path to redemption is long. And it starts with an apology to all the survivors whose careers and lives you've harmed. This is this brings us to some really complicated issues because, for example, among the harassers are people who have a personality disorder. And I'm not saying that to excuse their conduct, uh, but this is, I believe, factually true that you're going to find quite a few people with narcissistic personality disorder or things like that, which is notoriously difficult to treat. Uh, with anything, with therapy, with medication, with, with anything like that. So you've got that problem. But let's say it's someone who's either not a narcissist or not a full-blown narcissist. And so there's not like a medical issue kind of keeping them from changing. It is very difficult. For one, I think there's also a, a legal fear, right? That if you apologize, you've now admitted that, that you did something bad. So, so that's something that we have to think about kind of for, also from the perspective of the legal system like is there a way we can build a path to redemption that does not lead to more liability right perhaps uh if that's something we want and how do we know that the apology is actually heartfelt right as opposed to just something someone said to be reintegrated into society those are all very very hard questions and, and i think bring us back to larger questions about, you know, redemption of wrongdoers generally, not just sexual wrongdoers and not just in, in this kind of a setting. But, you know, if, if you could wave your magic wand and really 
change things in law schools and in the legal profession to discourage abuse by people with power. Now, I know you and your organization are doing a lot of important work when it comes to actual legal changes, right? Or you would like to put in place like protections for employees and things like that. But if it were something that you could change about the culture or to encourage people to change the culture, what can we do in the conversations that we have with, with colleagues, with one another to kind of motivate people to suss out who are these kinds of people? Maybe there's a way to already not hire them and you know i you know i not to go off on a too much of another tangent but i also have the experience of being at a law school which was not my current institution that hired a dean where, where there was a separation from that dean shall we say down the line after there were uh, allegations of sexual harassment and retaliation against that dean this was covered all over the press uh, it was a whole. It was a whole thing. The lawsuits were flying, and so on and so forth. And 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 I'm sure the institution eventually thought, huh? Like, yeah, it would have probably been better not to hire this person in the first place. I myself actually did hear that person say a few things during the interview process that, for me, were red flags. And. I was very junior at the time. I did point out those things. I did point out those things, but I was very, very junior. And then I just, you know, had to kind of watch it unfold. And so is this something, you know, it's so tricky because I feel like if I start saying, well, we should look at people's personalities in the hiring process. We know there are lots of biases that come into that. And it's like, well, again, is this something where, you know, women and minorities are going to end up getting treated worse, like in some other settings, if we do that. But are there certain things like where we could look at that without, without being biased? Like, are there certain kinds of arrogance or just inappropriateness? Or I would put it in the category of certain kinds of boundary pushing. That, that is what I observed. Like people who say things where you're like, yeah, that's not really socially appropriate. And that's something that you should know could make someone uncomfortable in an interview setting. Like, I think if someone is like pushing boundaries in an interview, that tends to be a bad sign. I know I just threw a whole bunch of stuff at you. So whatever you want to pick up from that. No, that, that's a red flag. If they're doing something wrong in the interview when they're supposed to be putting their best foot forward, that should be an enormous red flag. Um, I think questions about personality are particularly important when you're talking about professors who are going to deal with students. Yeah, maybe you don't want to make a personality judgment about somebody who's going to be off in a room by themselves doing work. But these are people engaging with students. And those are some of the allegations against Joshua Wright that are so troubling, these sexual relationships with young students. That is outrageous. But your larger question, it is about fostering candid dialogue about the full range of experiences. That is how we change the culture. That is how we foster a culture of reporting. That is how we make workplaces safer, more inclusive, enable people to feel like they belong. The messaging starting on law school campuses and then up through the legal profession discourages discussion of workplace mistreatment, discourages reporting. It goes back to those fears of reputational harm and retaliation, but it's on all of us to change that. 
it's on legal employers to not consider it a black mark when you are known as somebody who has spoken out against workplace mistreatment. That should be a badge of honor, not like a blackballing category. But that is how we change the culture, is we start on law school campuses, we foster honest dialogue. The messaging on law school campuses and in the legal community around workplace mistreatment is really, really bad. It's really toxic. It's got to change. And the example we're talking about today is just one instance of it. I think we also need to think about education around, I guess, like around understanding human behavior, because I wouldn't want someone, for example, to be dinged in an interview to be a law professor or a lawyer or anything like that because they're neurodivergent. Right. And so they might just act a little bit differently in, in some settings or in ways that perhaps are considered socially awkward or something like that. But there's a big difference between that and people who say things that might make others sexually uncomfortable or uh, things that end up like touching on topics of gender or race in ways that are really, really fishy. I think we can learn to distinguish between what is just part of, you know, different, again, different personalities, but like in an innocuous way and things that are going to be problematic. Now, sometimes we're going to get it wrong. And also some people did not start off being a sexual harasser when they first like came in the door and only years later did something start developing. And and I guess this is part of where if you create a, a culture that's generally comfortable for employees and for law students, and some of this comes all the way from the top, like all the way from the university. And there's there's a balancing act there, right? Because there are situations, and I think there have been situations in the last couple of years where professors and even tenured professors are in some situations not as powerful as some might think. And I'm thinking about some non-sexual issues that have arisen. So, for example, some really sad battles between professors and their students when it comes to things like COVID safety or things like that, right? Where professors were, were and still are to this day, literally begging for their lives because they're high risk and students refuse to wear masks and universities enable that kind of behavior. And so there are a lot of complex questions about kind of how do we protect everybody against abuses of power? There is also at least one recent story at a, not my institution, another institution where a woman who was tenured has been fired. And there are a lot of questions about the, the why and the how and what led to that. And I certainly am not claiming that I know all the details of this, not being on the inside, but where it's, you know, not at all obvious that this was justified with the facts that I have currently seen. So I, I would just put in a note of caution when we think about tenured professors, that it's not that they are necessarily all sort of protected, et cetera, and that there are real gradations. And so when we think about the things, for example, that have been said in the Josh Wright case, this was somebody who certainly came from the kinds of demographics that tend to be in a more advantageous position in society. This is someone who, by all accounts, was bringing a lot of money to the law school. And so not everybody among the faculty 
is created equal. Not all tenured professors are created equal. And there are some things, I mean, even things that I discussed with some of our previous guests of, you know, things that one could do like, hey, don't make the same person hiring chair year after year after year, right? Like those, that's, that's easy. That's something where you don't need like massive reform, but there are certain things you can do where, where you make sure that you kind of avoid that. And then on the other hand, also like, are there certain people that you're never letting be hiring chair? Well, why is that? Is there a legitimate reason or are you keeping some people on the periphery? Maybe you're especially keeping some whistleblowers on the periphery or some quote unquote possible troublemakers. So all of these things, uh, I think, are, are things that institutions can work on and, and where we can all do better. But I want to go back to your central point which is that at the end of the day, what kills us is the silence around all of these issues. And it is scary, but again, the more of us speak out, the more of us support one another, the more of us reach out to someone who has been a whistleblower and say, hey, how are you feeling at your institution? Can I help you? Can I help you try to get a different job? Can I help you get out? really making that part of one's mission life like that that's part of this entire push for justice that we in the legal profession are supposed to be all about so i think if people put their money where their mouth is when it comes to equity and when it comes to protecting victims that's also going to mean things like being a recommender for that person, reading that person's papers, introducing that law student or that alumnus or alumna to people that you know in practice, being proactive and not just sitting back and saying, oh, well, if anyone asks me for help, I'll, I'll help them then at most. What, what do you think about that? I totally agree, but it is about the larger point of creating this culture of reporting, fixing it, fixing this terrible culture of silence. I want to underscore, for me, it is empowering to share my experience. And while I imagine it is very scary for anyone considering speaking out, it is empowering. It is a mode of accountability. And I think we kind of overblow the fears of a negative response. There will obviously be some nutty people on the internet commenting as they want to comment, but overall the tide is turning toward accountability, transparency, and candor. And so it's on everybody to share their experience and it's on everybody to support survivors whether you are a colleague or a professor or an institution, it's on all of us. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. I completely agree. And I wanna end on last point, which is that some people think, well, what if I come to regret it that I spoke out or I reported? But you know what? There are people who live to regret not having spoken up and not having reported it. And what comes to mind for me is a conversation that I had with a more senior female law professor who experienced a lot of mistreatment that she described to me at her institution and who was now looking back and saying, you know what, maybe I should have sued. Maybe I should have done something about it. And so regret 
can come both ways. There is no way to control everything and to know everything in advance that could happen, good and bad, if you do and you don't report. So, you know, not to wax poetic too much, but I do think you have to think about, all right, at the end of my life, like, what am I going to be prouder of? That I spoke up or that I didn't speak up? I totally agree. I knew that I could never live with myself not speaking out. And when I see the many mistreated former clerks, mistreated other employees who reach out to me, they are suffering in silence. I listened to the previous podcast episodes you did on this topic. And I think one of your guests said she is still not 100% sure how she feels about her decision to speak out. I can tell you and listeners, it helped me. It helps other survivors. It seems like the right move to me. And you are helping people when you speak out, when you share your experience, because it lets others experiencing mistreatment know that they are not alone. And, you know, we will never know the counterfactual in the Joshua Wright story of what would have happened had Crystal Laser not posted the email where he was allegedly asking her out on a date. And it's really after that, that a number of other women started coming out. So there can be domino effects and you never know who else is out there that has a story to tell that you might be motivating. Aliza, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. It has been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. There's no the in there. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. We also appreciate support to defray our costs to run the podcast. You can help us out at Swipe Strangers on coffee.com, which is ko-fi.com. Even $5 helps, so please do consider it. I would like to thank my husband, Carl Sprini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kujuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.